Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney Plus and Hamilton. Experience the groundbreaking musical sensation like never before for your consideration in all categories. The original Broadway production of Hamilton is now streaming exclusively on Disney Plus. The following podcast has several spoilers about Promising Young Woman. Focus features Promising Young Woman. Carrie Mulligan stars as a person who was traumatized earlier in her life. Today with us on Crew Call is director Emerald Fennell and her production designer, Michael Perry, who deconstruct for us the symbolism and the colors of the world that they've created. Emerald Fennell and Michael Perry are here on Crew Call. Emerald, tell me about getting this project off the ground, everything from your inspiration to connecting with Margot Robbie's company um, to getting Carrie on board. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I started thinking about it um, a few years ago. I've been thinking a lot about, as I'm sure a lot of people had been, the sort of culture I grew up in where alcohol and drugs were just used so freely um, as a way of, you know, um, I would say, in inverted commas, seducing women. It was kind of every movie, every TV series um, in all of our lives. It just was treated as something normal. And I think, you know, obviously, as you get older, you start to reevaluate those sorts of things. So so that that had been, you know, in the back of my mind for a while. And then as as is usual with a with an idea, um, for me, it just comes in a kind of sort of moment fully formed. And for this, it was a young woman drunk on a bed as somebody undresses her saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then sitting up sober and looking at him and saying, what are you doing? And so I started pitching it, I think in like mid 2017. Um, and then I was really lucky uh, that my short film that I wrote and directed, Careful How You Go, was at Sundance in 2018. And then after that, um, I think a lot of stuff opened up and uh, a lucky chap who I'd, who I'd met before about a TV series that I'd loved. Um, yeah, they, I pitched, I only pitched the kind of pre-title sequence of the movie to anyone because that's kind of what was there. And, um, and they bought it just off that without knowing anything else. Um, and they were just incredible. And from there, you know, it was reasonably quick. I think they turned it round in like nine or 10 months we were shooting. Um, uh, you know, they're so brilliant. And uh, Film Nation, who are the studio, which is an incredible partner, um, and Focus Features, who were distributing. Everyone just... It was there was a sense of like I don't know if people just were behind it in a really wonderful way and they understood I suppose what it was in all its peculiar you know in, like glory I guess and because it was a you know low budget independent movie and because we shot it in 23 days I think they were willing to take those risks so yeah so that's kind of how it started how did you connect with Carrie? What's wonderful is we often think of her as the good girl. Mm. Um, she did shame, 
you know, I know that was, you know, that was a very dark role, but um, how did you, it's, it's wonderful because it reminds me of what Henry Fonda did in his career when he started working with Leone, you know, how he played the bad guy in that film. But how did you know that she could go this distance and how did she come on board? Were there other actresses that you were considering? Um, well, as to your first question, I just knew. I think I've always admired her. I think she's exceptional. I like that she very, very rarely does things. She only ever does things that she really responds to and likes. Um, she's. You can kind of look at the quality of her work really um and see that she is a very singular and single-minded person and I like that and also you know as with everyone in this movie I wanted to cast it in a way that felt um um sort of I suppose unusual so so if the if all of the bad guys in this movie are played by actors and actresses we all love I think it was important not to choose an actor who who was very practiced in doing like um, a lot of sort of badass roles or action movies or comedy. You know, I wanted somebody who had a sort of sense of stillness and almost otherness in the film, because that that is sort of what Cassie is. She's she is incredibly. Um, we can we know so much we can tell so much about her from Carrie's performance but she's a very enigmatic person so I didn't want anyone to come in who would be tempted to like you know make it give it a nod and a wink and I know that Carrie was never going to do that and so um, when I first went to the producers and we did a list she was the top of the list and I was lucky enough that she said yes the um the other question I had to ask you, and this, this came across my, my mind in watching it again, and I'll put a spoiler alert on this, by mm. the way. Um, did she, and this is my bad. So the first time I watched it, and Ryan comes into the coffee shop, it appears as though that's happenstance. It's just circumstance. He just happens to come in by opportunity. Meantime, she has a grand plan to ultimately get this Alex, this Alexander Monroe. I, mm. I mean, she's been she's been very hurt by this situation uh, with what happened to her friend Nina. But the second time I was watching it, did did somehow in advance she hook Ryan to come in? Was there something that I missed, or no? It was by chance that he yeah, happened to walk in. Yes, I think the thing the thing for Cassie in this movie, she's she has look, it's not hard to find the person you most hate in the world on Facebook. We show how easy it is to find him. It's that she doesn't look because she can't bear to, because she knows when she does, that all of her careful plans and and the kind of addiction and the self-harm that she's kind of kept at bay with the sort of excursions that she does at night will be out of the window. It's it's because she knows she and they won't be safe once it gets personal. And so I think the thing that, that was always very important about Ryan was that he, you know, he throws a bomb into her life in two ways. One, he brings this past kind of irrevocably to her door. It's a sort of, you know, like a cat bringing a dead rat or something. Once it's there, it's not like you can undo it. But also 
he's immensely lovable and he offers so much you know he offers the life that the promising young woman of the you know 10 years before could have had the ending mm. was there always a wonderful twist from the onset in the script or did you did at one point was there a draft where she actually lived well i don't draft so that's useful I write it all in my head, um, which sounds kind of dumb. I, I, I don't really know how to describe it, but all drafting happens in my head. And then at the very end, it gets transcribed down. So uh, by the time it's down, it's usually pretty much done, except for a few, you know, th there may be a few tweaks here and there or production things. But um, so, so no, there, there is no such draft. That this was always this was always the ending the the twist that we know that we see yeah i think well well the the the, the film as it is is the is the first film is the first draft i wrote down the first thing that i wrote down and it was complete i think uh, I, I i i would have entertained all sorts of different endings but this was the only one that felt um true to me and and unfortunately kind of true to the circumstances so we're here today with production design, your production designer from the film, Michael Perry. And what is wonderful is that the production design itself is a character in this film. Um, the candy colored coated uh, coffee shop. She wears pink. Boys wear blue. She sometimes wears blue. Uh, the wood panel backgrounds, which we will get into. But tell me first how both of you met why Michael was ripe for the job and immediately the conversations you started happening to set up this universe that she dwells in. Well, I'll just very quickly kind of set it up and then Michael will be able to take it from there. But um, uh, I am a huge fan of his, was a huge fan of his already. Um, and I'd seen it follows, I think maybe a year before and it had just, it's beauty and cleverness and visual wit had really just blown me away, especially considering that movie was, you know, on an even tighter budget and tighter schedule, I believe, than ours was. And um, and yet it looks completely, in a, you know, unique and in a particularly female, actually, feeling and looking world. And then, you know, when we were looking for people, I really thought Michael would just be incredible. And then obviously looking at his earlier work I saw that he'd done a, a huge amount of stuff that I loved including Sweet Valley High the TV series <laughs> and then so we had a conversation on the phone was the first time we spoke yeah. and then setting up this universe can can um just it just it's like so it's like she, it the whole notion of the multicolored, these vibrant colors. Tell me about that. What was the decision? What was the symbolism behind that in regards to her life? Michael, do you, would you like to sure. <laughs> comment? I, I, was, I was interested in how we met. Um, uh, <laughs> the colors. Well, the... the <clears throat> First of all, my job is to create a world that doesn't ring false to the kids, to the movie we're making. 
and Emerald sent me in her mood book. I actually, I think you warned me on the phone call before you sent it to me that there was Sweet Valley High things in it. And then about two days later, she sent me an Instagram thing to mur called Murder She Wrote Sets. And you go through them and you're like, Jesus, we were doing, be between me and them, we were inventing all kinds of colors. So <clears throat> there's two ways that I approached it. One was somewhat like a rock video. Paris Hinton, Britney Spears, absolutely. Um, but I also, we left little danger signs in every set, which is the punches of red until you get to the wedding when you have a river of red. So we, moments, but we wanted audiences, we, just like the script itself, we wanted to flip, you know, what you expect. And um, so there's, there's her colorful world, the, you know, uh, basically the coffee shop is where she thinks she's the safest. She thinks it. The home is where she is definitely frozen in time. The bars are, rock videos are colorful. And, and then each guy's place is <clears throat> a masculine place. It's warm, um, except for Ryan's, which is pretty neutral. And then the two big heavy hands are the Dean's office and the cabin where she's, spoiler, killed. Those are the only two that have greens in them and those warm browns. And um, my, my thing, I don't think, I, I don't know if I ever articulated, but all these interviews have sort of forced me to. The Dean's office is sort of the whole system that permits this to happen. It's the, I was calling it, that's the man. She doesn't get, and you also don't know if she's kidnapped that kid at that moment. So you really don't know where it's going to veer off. So totally that's a shift. Then we go back to that tone and the system ends up killing her. I know it's esoteric. But I don't think it was, you know, we, we, we never wanted to approach it in an esoteric way, but I do think like me and Michael really bonded because we're not afraid of symbolism or kind of visual metaphor. Like I think the thing about making a movie that's so exciting is you can do exactly as Michael says, is you build a world. You know, if, if this is Cassie's movie, then necessarily it's Cassie's world. And the things that you, I mean, the idea that the sets that, the art that everything in this movie is a character in itself. I, I think that's true because in any movie, you can say so much, so much about everyone by the color of their fingernails, by, you know, the fact that her mother's house, which is so um, maniacally feminine and so obsessively Baroque and curlicued and crammed with cherubs and, Crystals, you know, dog pictures, dog and, paintings. We, oh, had, you, you we had a big conversation about that because we said, you know, what does this woman have pictures of? She doesn't have pictures of her family, so she could have pictures of dogs. There isn't any dog in the house, but it's you know, all of these things that says so much about who this woman is. And what also says so much is having a plasticated, you know, dining, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, tablecloth over the 
tablecloth. It's like you can look but not touch. This is this is a place that is perfect and no one talks about anything ever. And it's, you know, and the femininity is kind of like caving in on itself. And that's the world that Cassie comes from. So like this was the thing I loved so much about working with Michael was that every time I said something that I think another <laughs> another person might have said, you know, absolutely not. That's insane. He was always just coming up with something completely beautiful and detailed and amazing. There was there was a world of this movie that I never really wanted, which was, you know, the world of like serious cinema. And I think that world is kind of what Michael's talking about. The world of mahogany, the world of velvet drapes, right. the world of men sitting opposite each other, you know, at tables and desks. That is what we have been taught is serious and how serious things are handled. But there's something so exciting about saying you can make a serious movie, um, you know, one that I hope is also funny and romantic, but one that is deeply serious, but also make room for pleasure and joy and beauty um that was just really important and that's why Michael's just yeah just a genius a complete genius she over exaggerates support for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney plus and Hamilton experience the groundbreaking musical sensation like never before for your consideration in all categories the original Broadway production of Hamilton is now streaming exclusively on Disney Plus. So the idea of wood. Yes. So when she meets Madison, it's a wood paneled, it's a wood yes. paneled, you know, hotel restaurant. I didn't think twice about it. Then um, you had brought up the Dean's office, Michael. Yeah. And then she dies in what is a dude's place. It's a cabin, all wood. And of course, the cowboy and hats. And plaid. The only movie I've ever used plaid in. Well, tell me about the wood. Is that, is there, is there a, um, is there a thematic connection here or no? That was just natural and organic. I, I think once, the first place we saw was where she was killed. So that, I had to build around that. And it just seemed to me that that dark heaviness was very masculine. And, you know, I ended up putting cowboy hats on it and plaid, there was plaid, plaid, plaid. Antlers. As we looked at, uh, like, there was, <laughs> there was a place that we looked at uh, for her parents' house that had too much wood. So we walked away from that one. Um, so while it wasn't initially something I went in with, it was definitely something that developed. Um, <sighs> You know, when you're moving this fast, um, a lot of time it's just gut. And I'm old enough now to trust my gut. So, you know, I was able to sort of spin on a dime for that kind of thing. Um, but it's, um, but yeah, there, it's, there are definitely themes in there that whether they were conscious or just, you know, rattling around in my head, now, the great thing with Emerald was if you go to Emerald and you go, what do you think of this? The great thing about Emerald, she'll go, yes or no. There's no discussion about, you know, 
is this right or not? She knew what was right. The movie was in her head. You know, we were just there to augment it. Um, so, I mean, to have a director who, who, well, first of all, to have a director who could write that script um, is pretty amazing. So you just get in there and you move on. Well, Where did, oh, go ahead. No, 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 I was just gonna, I was just gonna effusively praise Michael back. <laughs> Where was the movie shot? Uh, it was shot in Los Angeles, so kind of all over, and then Pomona, um, Thousand Oaks, uh, but we tried to shoot it, um, it, it, it we, we were probably the only production in the world that shot in Los Angeles and couldn't show a single palm tree or the Hollywood sign, we kind of actively were trying to make it look just like a much more generic everyday city, you know, one that every person could see and think, oh, that's my town. You know, that even British people, people all over the world could be like, I recognize that club. I recognize that diner. I recognize, you know, we, we were kind of careful to say, although this is an American film, it is, it is set in no particular place. Didn't want people to say, of course that happens in New York. Right. So I think I, re I, I think I remember where the pharmacy is. That's what gave it away to me that it was shot here in Southern California. Is that the Beverly Hills Pharmacy? No, it's on, not. On Pico Boulevard? No, no. no. I could swear yeah. it was the Pico Boulevard, this Pico Boulevard uh, Beverly Hills Pharmacy. Oh, gosh. No, so where was no, it? was where, What area was that in? Uh, where we also built the cafe, the coffee shop. Yes. Uh, oh, God. It's wow. It was, it's, it, was, it was definitely east of the 10. East, east, east. East, east, of the, east of the 101, further down the 10. Uh, I, if I looked at a map, I could tell you, but. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I was. So funny. It, I, I said, I turned to my wife and I said, that's the pharmacy where I picked up my chicken pox vaccine like 20 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I was like, because it was the way it was set and everything. I said, I could swear. They shot this in Southern California, so I backed <laughs> myself into this. Where was the um, where was the fine? Where was the cabin and everything in the in the mountain area? Where was that? Thousand Oaks. Okay, um, yeah. beautiful. By the way, uh, the um, the other thing um, I wanted I wanted to ask was um, did the the in the end. When she dies, there's a blue and a green light that comes in. Can you tell us about that? Do you mean do you mean the shot between day and night? Yes. Yeah. Yes. When the sun, when when she's lying on the bed, dead, yeah. mm. uh, there is a top green light and a top yeah. blue light that comes in. So 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 there's there's, there's a shot that was the kind of shot that was. Yes, it was sort of, it was scripted actually. I'm, I try not to be too specific about particular shots because it could just be kind of oppressive, but actually it was really important because especially in that sequence, you know, once she died, you obviously I understood what the audience was going to think, which was that like in Fatal Attraction, she was gonna spring back up again. Um, and so we did a sort of top shot over Al's shoulder, which kind of implied that, that, that kind of, that just settled on 
her face under the pillow, I guess, you know, waiting for that to happen, then it doesn't. And so it was really important for me to show kind of quite uh, um, both sort of visually and also irrevocably, I suppose, that what everyone expected was not the case. I didn't want to give people time to, I didn't want to give people time to think, oh, maybe, maybe that shot, which is her lying still on the bed from night, and then it immediately transitions to day with the shaft of light on her, and Al is the person who has moved. And that in in two seconds tells the audience that they are wrong. And she absolutely has gone. And I think that is incredibly effective because it's part of, you know, it's part of the suddenness of it. For, of, for me, the, the kind of, the reason that that death scene is so long because it's shot in real time in two and a half minutes, it's what, it's, it's how long it would take to smother someone roughly, um, which is why we did it in that amount because I think you have to show it, but also you have to show what it feels like when somebody's life is just cut short you know, how sudden, how quick everything changes. It just the whole world is turned upside down. And I suppose that was, you know, that was that was it. And and the kind of biblical sort of we we had a lot of biblical visual references, which I'm sure Michael will be able to talk a lot about. But um but you know that shaft of light is sort of the last one really before Cassie goes. The symbolism of blue, can you talk more about that? For example, um, when she is asleep at the wheel um, near the underpass and she is in a light blue car and a bluer car, a, a guy's pickup truck comes by and he harasses her and then she gets out and smashes the window. I'm thinking blue equals boy equals bad She's in a light blue car. She's surrounded in a male's world. And she goes and she, she you know, um, basically uh, defends herself against an even bluer uh, adversary. Am I reading this all wrong? Well, actually, well, Michael will be able to really articulate this because actually it's sort of, no, you're not, well, you're not wrong to read into it because that is precisely what we'd hoped would happen but actually I think blue is a bit more enigmatic than that in this movie yeah I mean um you know right off the bat you see the blues and the pinks and you go girl boy but we we do play with that throughout um not everywhere that's blue is necessarily bad although it does seem everywhere is bad honestly I guess watching it, I watched it again last night. And I was like, yeah, everywhere's bad. Everybody's <laughs> bad. Um, but there's a hope that somewhere, sometime there's good. There's a little bit of good somewhere. But yeah, we did want to keep to sort of a specific palette. And when we um, went out of that palette, it was a tonal shift that goes throughout this movie. And so there are places where things, I mean, that, that is a very tonal shift. You know, you actually see her doing violence. I think that was Carrie's favorite thing to do. Yeah. Smash up that truck. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's like, okay, now I, 
I feel like, well, have I watched it again sort of with a real, like, okay, what was our intentions? What wasn't our intentions? I mean, there are a lot of lovely mistakes that happen. And I think that that's when, when someone like Emerald has all her ducks in a row, you can let things happen. And that's sometimes the problem with movies is the actual process is when we're shooting and things can go terribly awry or awesome as shit, <laughs> you know? And there are, you know, the, the, I'm sure in, in some ways in the back of my head, I want to go, yeah, the blue truck is what was available, but I don't think I was that casual about it. I think when they showed me the trucks, I went with the blue one. Um, so. Emerald, um, the other thing I noticed in watching it again is um, the number of comedic actors that you surround Carrie with in what is a serious drama. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. And again, not all of them have just done strictly comedy, like Alison Brie has done both, uh, but and as well as Clancy Brown, but Jennifer Coolidge, uh, Bo Burnham, um, Chris Lowell, Christopher Mince Plasse. Tell me about that. I found that to be a very interesting choice. Reminds me a little bit of what Soderbergh did. Um, there was a Matt Damon film he did a while ago and all of the supporting characters in that movie were um, comedians or comedic actors. That's interesting. Well, yes, I mean, obviously... Uh, it... It's interesting that you described it as a serious drama, actually, because I perhaps sort of naively think of it as dark comedy. I mean, because I, I yeah, I mean, do. but I think for me, a serious subject. I think that's what comes to me first. Absolutely, but I think yeah. that that is what's kind of interesting about that, and what this film plays with so much, and what we deliberately and certainly visually, in terms of casting, all of it play with is that, you know as I was sort of saying before, how do you treat serious subjects? And for me in my life, for a lot of people and particularly women in my life, the, the horror is approached with a kind of grim gallows humor. And it is, you know, kind of a ferocious um, kind of self-defense mechanism, I suppose, all of these sorts of things. And so, so really, um, I, I have always thought of the film primarily as a kind of a, maybe a, a dark comedy and a satire of the revenge thriller. So, so I definitely knew I needed I needed actors who would be able to to you know play that without overselling it. But also, I think comedy actors are geniuses, and they and it's always pleasurable to see people do things that you're not expecting. But more than anything, we needed to choose actors that we felt safe with, that we felt supremely comfortable with that we brought a lot of affection to and that goes for all of the characters men and women because you know that's what this film is about this film is about what happens when people you like do things that are bad and where your allegiances are and where your natural where as a culture our natural inclinations and alliances sit because the truth of it is culturally we still um, contort ourselves to protect men. It is something that by nature we do, men and women. Um, 
And so it was important to cast people that, that the audience would strain to forgive too. You know, there was no point at all in having people who we didn't like or were skeezy or creepy. You know, the, the, the people you wake up next to and you don't remember how you got there are as handsome as Adam Brody, are as adorable as Chris Mintz Platts. You know, these, this, is, this is what we're talking about. And the women that you go to begging for help could be women that you like and respect and trust or you want to be their best friend that this is why it hurts I suppose so that was crucial what was the most challenging set for both of you to mount during production that'll definitely be a Michael question because I would just say but Michael can't you just build but, but can't you but surely you could just build it <laughs> and then you would say yeah we have five minutes and ten dollars Yes. Uh, I would say that I would say the one the coffee shop was difficult, but I'm glad it happened the way it did because I've now used my approach for that in the last three films I've done. <clears throat> so we only had the coffee shop for a day of dress, which is ridiculous. I'd like to say that up front. But what we did was we pre-laid it out. We, we obviously painted all that stuff. We, we had everything laid out. We made corrections in our, you know, on the floor. And then when we got it up, we were ahead of the game as opposed to you know, going, oh, let's put this on the wall. We've already gone through that. And now for my poor crews, I've made several of them at least for one set lay it all out for me before we ever put it up <laughs> but also i should say that it was a that it was a white room it was an empty yeah, store was, space. there was, was nothing a... it's not like we had a coffee shop that michael and the team dressed there was nothing it was an empty room <laughs> yeah that that was hard to <laughs> <laughs> emerald i i received a um I get these, uh, these I, I cover box office in addition to breaking film news. And I received a note uh, on the weekend of um, the opening weekend of Promising Young Woman from a non-focused feature executive who's emailing the industry and, and was, you know, report, you know, covering box office results. And they said, uh, Emerald Fennell, a name you should remember, is what they, they said in the note. Oh. Uh, which brings me to what is next for you? I know that um, a while ago it was announced that you were working with Andrew Lloyd Webber on a on a on a uh, a new a new musical version of Cinderella. But is that happening? And can you tell us anything about your your future projects? Absolutely. So so Cinderella, we're about to go. We were in work, we were in rehearsals in the theatre when lockdown happened in March. So when the Prime Minister said theatres are closed, we were physically in the theatre. So that was sort of deeply strange. But we start again, you know, it's coming out in spring, early summer. So we will start as soon as we're allowed to. It's amazing. It's incredibly, I hope Michael will be proud. It's incredibly, I think, operatic and grand and lavish and funny and it's original songs from Andrew and, and David Zippel, the lyricist, and they are brilliant. And, you know, I think it's just, 
I never wanted to go and be in a place with people this much and to go and see something new and to go and see something with unbelievable costumes and like heartbreaking songs and proper romance. It's just, I think we're all desperate for it. Um, and apart from that, um, yes, I'm writing my new thing. But that's, yeah, it's not, it's still in my head. So. <laughs> Emerald, and, Emerald and Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.